This is the future of finance by Motive Labs. Hello, and welcome again to the future of finance, the podcast where we live and breathe the next generation of financial technology. We're here with Jason Dupree from Privatar. I just had an opportunity to hear Jason speak and present at our Curated Discovery Day, a fantastic presentation directed at the ethical use of data. Jason, welcome. Great to be here, Peter. Thank you for having me on the show. You're touching on a very, very hot topic, one with the application of GDPR to the European banks and the rest of the world beginning to catch up. Can you first start with two things? One, how did you get to Privatar? And two, what business problem specifically is Privatar directed at? So I think over the years, we've seen a lot of companies realize the value of data and build entire enterprises around the value of data. If we look at the large internet giants today, a lot of those business models are based on the use of data. That data often relates to, to individuals, to people. And going back to 2010, 2011, we began to look at this problem and wonder how this was going to unfold in the future as people became aware of how their information was being used within these large enterprises. And then in 2012, Edward Snowden happened to the world. And I think that really raised the awareness of how powerful data actually is and how powerful organizations and entities that have information can become. And so we started to think about, my co-founder and I, John Tayson, began to think about how we could help solve this problem. Um, my background is enterprise software, and so we looked at how we could enable organizations who wanted to extract that value from data and make data-driven decisions, but do so in a way that was respectful of the data subject. That's the business problem. Can you just share some of the headlines on how Privatar helps the banks resolve the problem? Privatar is focused on privacy engineering techniques. And privacy engineering allows an organization to take a very contextual view of how it uses its data. And within each context manage what information is visible to the context and what information is not leaked in the context. So by way of example, if we are looking for predictive trends in a data set to work out what the next best product is going to be for a collection of customers, for example, we don't need to have any way to identify the individuals in that data set. We don't need to be able to surface distinguishing characteristics. We're looking at understanding how these cohorts behave and what the predictive trends in that data are. So how do we enforce those constraints in that specific context? Historically, we might have trusted a small group of people to do this work in a controlled environment, but today we want to get more data into the hands of more people because that's how we extract the value from this information. And the only way to do this at scale is to leverage technological controls in the environment. So summarizing across individual customers into a cohort, identifying different seg attributes, and then beginning to build, you know, next products, next services, trends from that, that makes tremendous sense. 
What about identifying individuals who may be in need of special services, in need of, they're your next best customer, they are, them in particular, are your next most profitable customer, or maybe they're your next customer who's likely to leave? And that's why it's such a contextual problem, because through the process of building the model, training that predictive model, we don't need to be able to identify individuals. And actually, if you imagine an environment where I have test and development sandboxes, I have my data scientists working with this data, looking to to build a a great model for predicting these next best actions. Once that model is, is ready and it's tested, then we can deploy that model into an environment where it's operating on, on real data. Even in in that context, we might want to execute that model on data that is not directly identifiable. But when we do identify that customer, we pass information back to a, a group or a context that does have the correct entitlement to address that individual. And then we can unveil or re-identify that individual in that specific context. Another good example, and what often brings us to life, is health data. So health data has such incredible potential to be used for good in society, to improve the way our healthcare system operates and and make it more efficient, but also to develop better drugs and clinical outcomes for patients. It also has some of the most sensitive data sets that you can possibly imagine and data that individuals care very deeply about. So how do we solve this problem? How do we make these data sets available for use by information technologists in health informatics, but do so in a way that is respectful of the of the data subject. In this type of example, we might take data sets, we might make them available in privacy-preserving ways while we develop these new new methods, while we run digital clinical trials. But if we did surface a particular cohort that was particularly vulnerable or susceptible disease, then we always need a way to to reverse back to the original data under strict controls. I, again, having seen this years ago as data was within a particular sovereign, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on Switzerland, you were never able to take things out of Switzerland without anonymizing it or, or, or summarizing it. And then having to go back into Switzerland once things have been processed, it sounds like you're conquering that on a global scale. You also hit uh, one of the my favorite words, and that's test data. Is anyone using your platform today to help drive the creation of test data within the bank's four walls to help them push forward the development of their applications? Absolutely. This is a very common use case. The challenge with test data in the context of big data is that you cannot synthesize it. It's very difficult to fabricate test data because we need to create data at huge volume, but we need to preserve the complexity of the production data sets. So the approach we take is we input the actual production data, we apply a privacy policy which constrains certain privacy rules over that data set, and the output is a data set that has got a much reduced re-identification risk preserves the complexity and then can be leveraged in these test and development scenarios. Question about the technology itself a bit, because again, from my understanding of GDPR, one of the key elements of it is privacy by design and default. Whereas when you think about the legacy architectures of most banks, that wasn't part of the design and it's not part of the default settings within them. Yet you are, Privitar, able to help the bank comply with with that GDPR mandate. 
Can you just go into some of the details on how you do it? Yeah, so in the context of GDPR, particularly in the, when we're thinking about big data analytics, privacy by design is a key mandatory requirement. And really what it says is that within every context, within every use case, I need to minimize the amount of information that I expose in that particular context. So this is a problem that is very well suited to privacy engineering techniques because we can say on a use case by use case basis, this is a policy that we're going to approve. So we get the compliance department or the information security group within a bank to agree to a set of principles. And then we enforce those principles in each and every context. And what those privacy policies do is they dynamically minimize the amount of information exposed in a particular context. So if I only need to see aggregate statistics, then there's a technology control that enforces that constraint. If I do not need to be able to identify individuals in a data set, there's a technological control that is enforcing that, that constraint in that particular context. And in that way, I can scale out and make that data available to a far broader range of contexts and users and groups within the organization and even outside the organization. I can start to share information that I would not have been comfortable sharing before because it was sensitive in some way with trusted or semi-trusted third parties. I realized, again, in Privitas' journey, you're at a point where you're what I'll call scaling up in terms of implementations. You have a tremendous wall of work in Europe, in the Americas, and then also in Asia to get implementations and increase the size of the customer base. That said, I'm sure you're thinking about what's next in terms of the features and functions. So do you mind sharing any future plans for where Privator will go next? Sure. Privacy engineering is a very nascent and emerging area of computer science. So the amazing thing about this field is that it is rapidly developing. And we have a very active research and development agenda to ensure that any customer that partners with us today has a future-proof roadmap over the next five to 10 years as we begin to adopt these new technologies. So today, the company is focused on data anonymization, de-identification strategies, increasing use of homomorphic encryption to allow compute and linking over encrypted data. What we're looking at, I guess, in the near term is broader use of deferential privacy. Differential privacy is a model that allows us to measure sensitive information leakage. And so we can make aggregate statistics available in, in a provably private way. And as we look to the future, we looked more towards things like privacy-preserving machine learning or differentially private machine learning. We look at increased usage of various secure multi-party compute patterns that drive even broader collaboration over data. But the key, and I think this is very core to what we're doing at Privatar, is to bring this back to a common set of paradigms that can easily be deployed inside the modern enterprise. So we want to make this a tractable problem, something that can be deployed in an organization at scale and adopted as a standard within an organization to solve all their privacy engineering challenges. So I have one more question, and I'm going towards a uh, particular group in our audience, and that would be the younger people who might be at university, might be recently graduated from university. You're hit on privacy engineering, which you know is a discipline and will be clearly a growing discipline. What types of subject matters and research and or training should some of the younger people be doing in order to start a career in, in privacy engineering? So I, I see privacy engineering as a sub-segment of data science. 
you know, data science has really created this problem because it's all about pulling together fragments of information to reveal insight, which is enormously powerful. But, you know, turning that around, data science provides some of the answers as well. And so privacy engineering is really a, a subfield within computer science and data science. And so we look at individuals with strong statistics, mathematics, and computer science backgrounds. And I think the way the world is evolving, that's a very safe bet in terms of uh, where we go in the future. Excellent. Uh, thank you so much for your time. And I'm confident that Privator will be very, very successful in the coming years. I'm, I'm looking forward to watching, watching you succeed. Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for your time and insights. And thank you very much for tuning in. I'm Sam. See you next time. The information contained in this podcast is intended for discussion purposes only. It is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation for the purchase or sale of a security or any services of motor partners. All investing involves risk, and there is no guarantee that past performance will be indicative of future results. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are as of the date of recording, reflect the views and opinions of the persons expressing them, and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of motive partners. Motive partners makes no representations or warranties as to the accuracy, reliability, or completeness of any information provided, and undertakes no obligation obligation to update, amend, or clarify the information in the podcast, whether as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. Any securities, transactions, or holdings discussed may not represent investments made by motive partners. It should not be assumed that securities, transactions, or holdings discussed, if any, were or will be profitable, or that the recommendations or decisions made in the future will be similar, or will equal the performance of the securities, transactions, or holdings discussed herein. This podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are based on beliefs, assumptions, current expectations, estimates, and predictions about the financial industry the economy, motive partners or motive partners investments. Nothing in the podcast should be construed or relied upon as investment, legal, accounting, tax or other professional advice or in connection with any offer or sale of securities.